Hey, and my name is Eric Andreessen, and many of you might know me from my other show, Dorm Room History. I'm still grinding through my Praetorian Guard show for Dorm Room History, and I think the next episode will be out quite shortly. But I've hit the existential question of how much should I really be producing and outputting? And the answer, well, for me at least, is more. After plowing through every single hardcore history podcast twice, I finally left the safety and familiarity of Dan Carlin and tried Mike Duncan's The History of Roman for size. I'm going to be real with you. Format-wise, these were way different. Instead of like four months, then boom, a new three to four hour mega episode part of a four part series. Duncan instead does a weekly episode, which ranges only from 15 to 25 minutes. And every week with Mike Duncan, you progress a little further chronologically and you get the big picture. So I assume you read the title of the episode. Let me try and get some build up here nonetheless. I started Dorm Room History out in a Dan Carlin-esque format, and I started it out you know, with a show about the Han Dynasty in ancient China. In an effort to give more content, fill my now empty schedule, because yes, all my classes and my dorm room for dorm room history have been canceled for the coronavirus, and I'll be doing a History of China show now. I will attempt to do an episode every week, ideally before every Friday night, but you never know. We'll see how this goes. Time-wise, I'm aiming for 15 to 25 minutes, but again, who knows? Maybe, maybe we see longer episodes. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Before I dive in, I would like to explain why China. Why this? If you know me, you know that I love history. And yeah, history from all different times. It all interests me. But for personally, like myself, Roman history has always carried you know, large significance for me, and I've always been intrigued by it. But as I said in my very first dorm room history uh, series, The Han, and by the way, if you want to see unpolished and low production value, I suggest you go see that immediately. Rome is great. We know a lot about Rome, and especially living in the Western world where a lot of our life has been built around an understanding of the Roman civilization, we ignore a power of almost greater size, greater influence, and greater technological advancement in the Chinese. This isn't anyone's fault. China was way off to the east. And imagine, there were planes, communication. People had to walk. So there was the Roman Empire in the west, the Parthians in the middle, a couple of fringe nomadic nations, and then the Chinese Han Dynasty. Existing at the same time as Caesar, were equally as ambitious characters. Existed equally as complex battles, and guess what? Only one of them gets remembered. The goal with this show is to try to bring about a better understanding of ancient China. Yes, there wasn't a massive Western religion that was based in the language of the Chinese. I'm talking, of course, of Latin, by the way. Translating old Chinese texts are hard to do. A lot less is known. But that doesn't mean not a lot is out there. And that's what we're going to do on this show. So, without further ado, the history of China. In the beginning here, there's going to be a lot of comparisons to Rome. It's inevitable. 
the whole crux of this show, the whole reason why I'm doing it, is to sort of juxtapose the Roman fervor that we have in the Western world. As we know, Rome was founded by a Romulus character and a Remus, and they sucked on the tit of a wolf, and you know the rest of the story. China doesn't go that way, because China wasn't centered around a city. Instead, China is a long, long, long-lasting civilization. And civilization is the word I want to use here, not empire. Because in China, as we're going to find out in the episodes to come, there were empires, different dynasties, different ways of ruling, different systems, different sizes, different states partaking in it. But in the end, the beginning of China is where we're going to start. No, we're not starting at the Qing where China was first unified under Huang Shidi, no, we're going back to try to understand the roots, at least in this episode, of ancient China. There's no Romulus, there's no Remus, there's no central city here or place to base this story on. Instead, we could go all the way back to the Neolithic days when humans first settled in the region of modern-day China. And we could talk about even the homo sapien cousin that popped up, the Denisovians. But alas, I digress a bit. Because obviously the evolutionary anthropology section of this story, wow, really cool, will have to be omitted for this. But like our understanding of Romulus, China's existence does have a semi-fictitious origin story. There's not a whole lot of information on this period I'm going to talk about. But before the first semi-recorded period in Chinese culture, in any semblance of what we will see in this podcast, there were the five emperors, which were existing from the beginning of what is humanity in the eyes of the Chinese to around 2070 BC, which in that year began the three pre-imperial dynasties, which started with the Xia, and then the Shang, and then the Zhou. And all of those, by the way, we will get to in due time. But the creation of the universe in the eyes of the ancient Chinese bleeds right into the period of the five emperors. Depending on which religion or group of people you would have asked in ancient China, you would have gotten several different answers to where it all came from. Where did the earth come from? Where did the universe come from? Why are we alive? Why is there a sky? Etc. There are tons of different stories. But the origin stories aren't really based in religion as we sort of associate them uh, to be related to in Western civilization. You know, you have life, the sun, and heaven, etc. were all constant, however, but those bled into the five emperor story, and that is worth noting. The five emperors are semi-divine stories or figures that show what near-perfect governance, again, like a Romulus or a George Washington character now, looks like. Who freed America? Well, as Mike Duncan pointed out, realistically a whole lot of people. But now it's boiling down to just, well, Washington. What about Rome? Well, Romulus created everything. That's why everything existed the way it did. Well, if, in that case, if you were asking a ancient Roman. But this is where myths begin to resemble something looking like history. And this is the Wu Fang Shi Di, the five emperors. The first of the five emperors was Huang Di, the yellow emperor. And by the way, quick pro tip, remember those words, Huang Di. You're going to need those in due time. But Huang Di, according to the ancient historian 
uh, Huang Fumi, was born in Shouqiu, which is just outside of modern-day Chufu. Which, I'm going to be honest, I understand a lot of my listeners don't know where that is. It's not like talking about Europe, where many of us have family or ancestry from, or we learn about it in history books. This is a city that lies in eastern China. Sort of, sort of equidistant from Shanghai in the south center, and Beijing in the north. His story, which again, is shrouded in missing information and often different interpretations that contradict themselves, is often seen in a light familiar with another important birth story in Western culture. Let's see if you can guess it. Because Huangdi is sometimes said to have, quote, been the fruit of extraordinary birth, end quote. And his mother, Fu Bao, conceived him while she was walking outside when a lightning bolt from the Big Dipper struck her. Extraordinary conception? Sound familiar? I'll let you guess what I'm talking about. During Huangdi's birth era, China was filled with nomadic peoples. It was all nomads. But Huangdi was not going to just let his people live like this. According to a tomb from the mid-2nd century AD, quote, The Yellow Emperor created and changed a great many things. He invented weapons, and the wells, and field systems. He devised upper and lower garments and established palaces and houses, end quote. Why does China have houses and a civilized society while all of our neighbors seemingly are nomadic horsemen, an ancient Chinese might have asked? Well, simple. Huangdi taught us how to build shelters, gave us our clothes, taught us how to make boats and carts. He taught us how to domesticate animals and grow crops. All of those things, by the way, have been attributed to Huangdi, but Huangdi lived a life strife with conflict as he beat out other warring factions and other nomadic peoples and seemingly unifies China in the process. But after living over a hundred years and ruling for most of it, Huangdi meets a phoenix and a Qilin, which by the way, a Qilin is sort of a horned beast that is known in the ancient Chinese culture of signifying the imminent arrival, or in this case, departure of a sage, or again in this case, an emperor. But who is the second of the five? Well, there is actually debate here, but the story I will follow in the Dorm Room History, History of China show, goes as such. After Huangdi died, Sima Qian, a Han-era historian, remarked that the next emperor was Zhuangxu. Though, this is also a character that might be known as Gao Yang, but for this story, we will refer to him as Zhuangxu. Zhuangxu did not immediately assume power, though, and this is where there's a little bit of debate, because his uncle, Shao Hao, held some sort of placeholder role until the young Zhuangxu was old enough to assume power. Shao Hao, and this, by the way, was drilled in by many ancient Chinese historians, never actually reigned as king, so he's not one of the five emperors. When Zhuangshu, around the age of 20, became emperor, he did a great many things. Most importantly, though, he was credited with separating heaven and earth entirely by commanding an end to all unauthorized communication between the two. And by the way, in allegedly his own words, this emperor stated that there was, quote, now no more ascending and descending. And after this was done, order was restored and the people returned to virtue, end quote. The bamboo annals record that in his 13th year of his reign, Zhuan Shu, quote, invented calendar calculations and delineations of the heavenly bodies, end quote. 
did quite a lot there. As I asked with Huang Di, why is heaven not part of our current existence? Someone might have sat back and asked, well, easy. Zhuang Shu separated the two. Why is there a calendar system? Obviously. That's simple. Zhuang Shu. Zhuang Shu, though, eventually dies. But his death is not really clear. It's not like Huang Di where we have a very clear understanding of what happened after ruling. He had a phoenix. Not in this case. But it can be assumed that he lived a long and successful and relatively peaceful life. And after him came the third emperor. And this was Emperor Ku. Ku, by the way, was the great-grandson of Huang Di. And this guy, interestingly, is recorded to have been born with double rows of teeth, which we might look at as a bad thing, but he had the wisdom of a sage. And to clarify, he was born with that wisdom. He was a god-king, and he even added Di, which is spelled D-I, to his name to signify that fact. Not much is really known about what Ku did, but when he was dying at a ripe old age, he named his son Yao as his successor. But his older son, Jur, usurped the throne and broke this order from his dad, which again, his dad was Emperor Ku, and himself became emperor. So Yao, who was promised the throne, who was told he would be the successor, was out. After six to about nine years, though, Yao eventually would retake what was his. To clarify, by the way, Zhur, like Xiao Hao, is not one of the five emperors. Now, it's often stipulated, and I seemingly agree with this, that this is a story about how to handle succession. This is a problem that we have seen in every single monarchical rule system since the dawn of time, and in this case, since ancient China. Whether it's Rome, ancient China, Greece, England, even in South America, North America, it doesn't matter. Succession is hard. Just look at Alexander the Great. You do it wrong, it's all gone. So maybe it's stipulated that this story from Ku, while he didn't do a whole lot during his actual life that maybe translated into the daily lives of the ancient Chinese, maybe his is a story about succession. But Yao, now, the fourth emperor, is considered to be the morally perfect and the most intelligent sage emperor. While the previous emperors are almost divine answers to how the earth and why Chinese society became the way it was, Yao's rule instead was a blueprint for how all emperors in the future should, and by the way, did, aspire to emulate. He was treated by many early Chinese in the early dynasties as a literal historical figure as much as they would have treated their own current emperor as such. He was a fantastic leader, morally righteous. However, a flood eventually came and ravaged the country, and he tried endlessly to quell it, but he just couldn't stop it. I will note here, as a little side note, floods were a big issue in ancient China, and they became a big issue back even close to the 70s, in our time. So it's not surprising that an ancient semi-divine character had a deal with flood issues, because that was something that was near and dear to the ancient Chinese. But back to Yao, he couldn't stop it. He had tried to bring up an officer named Gun to deal with the flood, but he just couldn't. Nobody could. So being the good and morally perfect emperor that he was, Yao tries to resign. He says, look, 
I can't protect my people. I'm going to give power to those that better can do that job. And in this case, the people he wanted to give power to were his special advisors, known as the Four Mountains. What a cool name, by the way. Imagine if instead of saying Trump's cabinet or our president's cabinet, you just said we consulted the Four Mountains. This is what we have decided. But I digress. The Four Mountains were offered the throne, but they refused this straight up. Nope, we are not. But instead, though, of saying, no, you be ruler, they recommended a man named Shun, spelled S-H-U-N, who was a distant relative of Yao, and thus the great OG Huang Di's relative as well. But Yao was smart. He wasn't just going to give power off immediately, so he maintained power for the time being, all while putting Shun through a series of tests from marriage to governance, and all of which, by the way, he passed. So with that, after passing several rounds of the test, Shun assumed the role of co-emperor, which lasted, this sort of co-emperor system lasted for about 30 years. But then, Yao dies, leaving Shun with the sole control of the known world. On his own, Shun established many things. Most notably, he established uniform measurements of lengths and capacities, and he reinforced ceremonial laws. He divided the land into 12 provinces, which explains the, well, 12 provinces we will soon know and love dearly, though, again, the number fluctuates, but you get the idea. He reorganized the government and made it look like, maybe not exactly what it would end up being like, but he made a system that was recognizable to the ancient Chinese government that we will get to know in the next couple episodes. He created ministries where you would have a specific minister for specific government tasks, like a minister of agriculture, a minister of waterworks, minister of the military, etc. You get it. You get the picture. So what does Shun give? Well, why do we have length? Shun. Why do we still follow these ceremonial laws? Well, easy. Shun. Why are the provinces the way they are right now? Well, again, easy. Shun. Why does the government have a minister of everything? Well, again, Shun. But it wasn't so much of an answer as someone to aspire to. Because like Yao, Shun would be a character or an emperor, however you want to define him as, that would be looked at by future emperors as someone to emulate. Shun was a man of the people, and he liked to tour his land. But while touring in the eastern provinces, he was struck by illness. And this illness, unfortunately, took his life. So his son, Yu, was selected to be his successor. But Yu is the dividing line between the five great emperors and the first pre-imperial period known as the Xia. But unlike the semi-divine rulers that were the five emperors, the Xia are not semi-divine. They might have really existed, probably from around the year 2070 BC to 1600 BC. But the question remains... What do we know about them? Because honestly, not much exists to prove that the shop did actually exist. They weren't divine, they could have existed, but nothing really says they did. Pulling it back to Western culture, we can look at it this way. Troy was a real city. Greece was a real place. Athens, Sparta, all those places were real. But did Achilles really exist? Were gods fighting with spears at the same time next to men? Probably not. The same question remains here, separating the truth, the history, from the myth. With this early period, we have to try and sift through what was history and what was myth. 
But the five emperors, for all the ancient Chinese cared, were real. And they explain a lot of how and why society started and existed the way it did in ancient China. And that's where I will leave it for today. Next week, we will start looking at the pre-imperial dynasties of the Xia and the Xiang. While the Xia may or may not have actually existed, the Xiang definitely did. Artifacts, scripture writing, engravings, you name it, we have it. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all next week on the History of China.